Hello and welcome back to the Future World Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and last week I had a chat with someone who I regularly catch up with and discuss all things future of work. And today we have a similar conversation between myself and Erin Peters. I first met Erin when we were on a panel together for an event focused on talent and technology and we've stayed in touch since then. We live pretty locally to each other and we've caught up for a coffee to discuss mutual areas of interest. Erin's got a fascinating background, having worked remotely for well over a decade and been an early employee at TopTal, where she helped build the community of top tech talent before supporting other organisations from startup to scale up in community and growth roles. She's the co-founder and editor of Freelance Focus, giving you all the insights you need to know about the freelance revolution. And she's a consultant for the Startup Consortium, a boutique consulting agency. She really is an expert and thought leader on remote working and community. So if that's something that you're interested in, whether you're a community manager or thinking about building a community to help support and grow your business, then check out the Community Masterclass she's going to be running this October. I feel like I learn something new every time I speak with her, which is why I invited her onto the show today. And I'm certainly an advocate of a more flexible, distributed way of working. But if you really need to get to grips with what's the best way to structure and grow a remote first culture, then you need to listen to Erin. From my side, as ever, if you enjoy listening and reading about themes like these, make sure you check out the Future Wildlife newsletter. I also discussed community at length in my book, Work Life Flywheel. Finally, I'll be speaking regularly at company and industry events as we come out of the summer period. So if you'd like to get in touch and discuss me speaking with your team, then you'll find a link in the show notes. That's enough for me for now. Let's jump into my conversation with Erin. We spoke last week and we, you were saying that You've obviously focused on a few specific areas in a lot of detail over the past few years. And we could talk about some of those different areas a bit later, but I'd be interested in hearing whether there's anything you've particularly changed your mind on over those past few years, either about how we work or how companies should think about building teams, building culture. Yeah, actually, I think a lot about remote work lately because of, and I think you and I spoke about this on where we met, there was a panel discussion where we had first uh, encountered one another, but, you know, talking about remote work and then hybrid working. And now it seems like there's a lot of propaganda to get people back into the office. And Mm -hmm. especially this week, there's a new research study that just came out. Uh, It was with MIT and a few other uh, universities. And they basically said that remote workers are 18% less productive than people who work in the office. Yeah. And I'm thinking a lot about culture for like remote native teams, a company that started fully remote, hybrid teams where they have an office in one or a few places and some remote workers. And then also people who, you know, used to be in office and transition remote or maybe transition back. And what this actually means for the way that people work, because the study really pissed me off. And I'm sorry if I'm not allowed to use that type of language on the podcast. You let me know. That's fine. That's where it's where it's encouraged. Yeah, because they so they used a sample of uh, data entry engineers in India. Yeah. And they basically went, surprise, you're going to work from home like these days kind of a thing. But they didn't allow people to have the right at home setup. And this report is getting tons of publicity in the US. It's in Bloomberg. It's all these different places. But I think it also ignored the fact that India has very different at-home cultural implications than other parts of the world. Multi-generational families, different familial responsibilities and pressures and all of this. And that doesn't account for people like being able to be successful in these roles. So I've been thinking a lot about 
the way that we set people up for success, not just in remote working, but also across the board when it comes to building teams, preparing people for their work environment, regardless of where it is. And also mm. just people finally understanding the difference between remote working, which could be anywhere versus like work from home. Yeah. So that's been on my mind this week. <laughs> yeah. All right. So well, what, 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 let's think about that difference then. So you, you mentioned the word native in respect of companies building a team, but also building this culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, tell us the obvious differences when that's the case compared to a company which has a legacy of working 100% in office and is now typically, and you probably see this as much as I do, just can't work it out. They still, You've still got a large proportion of leaders, managers who just want to revert back to the norm. So what difference does it make? And then what can those legacy businesses do to improve things? Yeah, definitely. And I think there's kind of two main factors that come to mind. One is just preparedness. So like I said, with setting up these remote workers and like making sure they have the right environments to work at home or a desk set up and all of this. But I think preparedness in the way that you operate in your processes is important. A remote native company is going to have things in a shared online drive. They're going to have really good documentation for things. They're going to know how to work asynchronously a lot better than those who are in an office and used to just strolling over to say hello to someone. So I think operationally, a native company has things sorted out. Whereas if you're transitioning to remote, you're used to being able to come over and say, hi, Ollie, and let's hop over and grab a coffee or let's have meetings here or there. And not really establishing best practices in the same way because it's much more tribal knowledge, I think, in person than it is Mm. in a remote environment. But the second main factor, I think, is the perception of remote working because a remote native company is a remote first mentality, whereas a a remote adjusting or transitioning company is a remote okay environment. Mm. And you even see the words like remote okay on these job titles because it's seen, even the words itself, remote first, remote okay. There's a different perception of how allowed it is or accepted it is or what the priority should be. And the way that people are going to treat and behave workers in different environments is also inferred from that. So I think it's a little bit of, you know, kind of that cultural perception, but also just operational excellence. Is this a problem which is category dependent? As in, you know, you've worked in tech businesses primarily, I guess, throughout your career, which perhaps lend themselves better to remote first cultures but if you're a I don't know services business which has a call center and you've got support staff and those people um, have all been based in a call center or an office before is it is it just fundamentally more difficult for people in those types of roles to shift to a remote first approach do, do these people need to be coming together more consistently I mean what, what are you seeing in terms of differences between different industries and categories. Totally. Well, I mean, it may surprise you to know, but most support workers are no longer in call centers. They work from home and work from anywhere. And you have a lot of people who are, you know, answering different support threads from their couch or even from their mobile phone and doing it in piecework to earn a certain amount of money as freelancers. So that's quite quite common now to be done that way. I think roles definitely play a factor. Ones where you're mostly dealing with customers, like customer support, um, or a salesperson, or an account manager, or even an end service provider, more often than not, you're not really talking to your colleagues all that much anyways. If you're a salesperson, you're on one sales call a week, but you're most, like, your job is to talk to the customer, and they're yeah. not in your office anyways. So I think a lot of these roles can be done remotely. Um, in my days as a digital nomad as well, even roles like 
there's lawyers on our trip or people doing like medical transcription or telehealth on our trip and all of these different mm. things. Granted, a lot of those have a lot of regulations. So it depends where in the world you're doing it, but you don't need to be in a dedicated office. Um, so I do think that it's, there's a lot of people who just think that it's a lot more constrained than it truly is. It really depends on the mechanisms of your role. I think the hardest thing to replicate that I still think is powerful in person is brainstorming anything where you have to be mm. super creative and all be in a room together in a whiteboard. Um, I don't know anyone who's done whiteboarding really well digitally yet. <laughs> no, it's not got the same dynamic, has it? It's, it's just, it's no. not as free flowing and it's not as bad. I think one-on-one we're having this conversation. I mean, we don't actually live very far away from each other. So we could, we could have probably done this in person. It's just sometimes easier to just jump online and do it. And it's easier one-to-one because you can still see the other person but definitely when there's multiple people, uh, you know, that, in that group dynamic, it is not as free-flowing, which is why Zoom calls are just so draining. Yeah. Well, and, you know, sometimes I do think that online makes some things a little bit easier in those group dynamics. I think any any group that's too big in-person online is just not good for brainstorming. Mm. <laughs> like yeah, in yeah, general, yeah. it's hard. But yeah. there are, you know, introverts and other people who might be neurodivergent. Like, they struggle in any group setting to be able to raise their hand or step in. And we all know that like they who speak loudest normally win different mm. ideas, right? And so if you can have a digital cue of everybody uses the best practice to mute, but if you want to speak, unmute first, and then you can kind of yeah. pass the digital baton more easily than someone who may be too fearful to raise their hand in a physical office. So there are some advantages to it, but it's just, you know, being able to pick up on that energy or stop and have a coffee or grind it out in know a cool co-working space it's just not the same yeah yeah and i agree the last few years where we've had this mass requirement to meet remotely and meet online has at least forced us to recalibrate or just rethink what meetings are for Uh, and to a certain extent i think that's probably improved meeting etiquette among some people you know there are some people who it doesn't matter what rules you place, whether informal or formal, they still just speak over other people and they still want right. to, you know, hold the power in the room, whether it's virtual or real. I always come back to one of the most popular newsletters I've done. I've written it a few times and it's actually probably the most popular request when I do a kind of workshop type thing is how to reinvent meetings. And there's things in there. I mean, it's some like really basic stuff in there, like everybody's got too many meetings. I mean, literally, I think everybody in the world has too many meetings, even if you're aware of it. But things, some like radical things, seemingly radical things, like just removing all meetings and starting again. That most, most people cannot envisage that they could ever do that. But actually, since I've worked with some companies, they've done it. And it's not as hard as you think it is, actually, to just remove them all and then just add those which really, really are necessary back in for a required length of time. So things like that. And also simple things like rather than, well, for a start, every meeting should have an agenda. But it, if you phrase it in questions, that tends to be a more effective use of time because if you answer the question, first of all, you're done when you answer the question. And if you don't answer any of the questions, then what have you actually achieved in a meeting? And so there's lots of these different things, I think, which I think people have got better at. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned that too, because I think like recurring meetings are the worst, right? Because mm. they just allow you to slowly delve into like unproductive territory or just lose yeah. sense of purpose for these calls. So I definitely think that reviewing all recurring meetings is a plus and also don't set recurring meetings for more than like a month <laughs> like yeah. review them regularly but yeah. there was um a post that i came across a while back and it was something that was 
you know, through the CIA or the FBI or something. And it was these spies. And basically it was a handbook of how they could go in and infiltrate organizations and just make them entirely dysfunctional. And one of the core pieces of the playbook was like, insert yourself and make really bad busy work for people and like make a lot of like really redundant work and like small mistakes that require people to redo things. And I think oftentimes meetings about purpose is kind of like that yeah. <laughs> because you're here wow. just to one person to talk to many or someone to review and update rather than actually collaborating. And so in my mind, it's like no updates should take place on meetings. They can be written and asynchronous. Yes. But anything yeah. to do with like team building or relationship building, collaboration or problem solving, these are the things you need to do synchronously and probably live and on a camera. But mm. like a weekly huddle to go over something that you already probably wrote in an email report, like you don't need to do that. <laughs> yeah. Company cultural espionage. I like it. Exactly. Maybe that would maybe be the title <laughs> of this this podcast. I'll find out. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's funny because you, when you were mentioning there about remote first businesses versus let's call them legacy, you know, um, in-person businesses. And, and then I mentioned about meetings, actually the same principle kind of applies to both, which is first principles. This is the thing which I struggle with a lot of the time when I speak to people within companies, you're not asking people to be radically different for the sake of being radically different. You're just saying, look, let's just start again here. Let's just start again and think about what would be the best way of creating a team environment. How would be the best way to communicate with one another or to share knowledge with one another? And we're not saying one way is better or worse. We're just saying start from first principles and understand why you're doing something and then go from there because that seems to be what's lacking a lot of the time. And you might call it common sense. And of course, it's hard to apply common sense at scale when we've got lots of people with different incentives and different motivations. Mm -hmm. But very often, it's uh, that whenever I, I talk to people, I often have to caveat and say, look, this probably sounds obvious. But then you say it, and of course, most of the time, they're not actually doing the thing that you suggested. Yeah, and that's the saying, right? Common sense mm. isn't so common. <laughs> but, no, exactly. um, I think when it comes to things like team building and cultural building, I do think that there is, you know, one is harder than the other and naturally remote work team building is always a little bit more challenging yeah and to me the core difference is just you have to be so much more intentional about it it's so easy in a remote environment to only message someone when you need something from them versus those kind of small in passing meetings that you might have in an office or grab the small coffee it's almost mm. just built into like happenstance like how many times have you met a coworker and then you lo no longer work there but you just never ever speak again because you were like a circumstantial friend to one another, yeah. right? It was for that environment versus there's people I worked remotely with seven, eight years ago. Cause mind you, to those who maybe don't know me that are listening, I've worked remotely for 14 years. So I did it like well before it was cool. Such a hipster, <laughs> <laughs> but, but we still keep in touch fairly regularly and hop on the, on yeah. the call and, and see how people are doing because you're used to reaching out to just check in on yeah. people because otherwise you just don't, you never talk to anyone. You never hang out with them. You're just alone in a room in your house or somewhere yeah, <laughs> waiting yeah. for social interaction. <laughs> and I was thinking sort of broadly, so you've worked in different organizations where you've had to be thinking about these things, either yourself or as a conduit through other departments. I mean, should HR, in your view, be leading all people and talent related strategy? Or should it be coming from other areas of the organization? You know, should it be coming from 
departments, different departments? Should it be coming from leaders or or should HR be point people on all of this stuff? Up until a few years ago, I didn't spend a lot of time interacting with HR because I was running my company. It's a small company. And now I've got to know a little bit about the machinations of HR departments and companies large and small. And I think most companies just aren't clear about what the role of HR is. And I don't think it's helping anybody, including HR. Yeah. And I hate to have my tinfoil hat on a little bit when it comes to HR, but, you know, HR doesn't represent the workers, right? They represent the company and Mm. they make sure that people are compliant and onboarded and performing. And this is why they go through your contracts, setting up your equipment. Uh, They act as a conduit for any type of complaints and escalations. And then they ultimately also do any type of offboarding. They're there to protect the best interests of the company. And I think when you try to have any type of community or cultural role embedded within that, a lot of people have a bit of a natural distrust to people in HR because they don't really know how private things are. Maybe even you get workers benefits like counseling sessions or anything else. And you go, how much of this is getting back to the company? Right. Mm. So the core part of any type of building a human relationship is trust and authenticity and human to human connection, not brand or company type of connection. So the more you can separate church and state into another function or have employee led or community led type of initiatives where it's, you know, anyone can opt in to host these things. That's usually the type of initiative that lasts a little bit longer and ends up being more valuable in the end. It's a little bit, it has that authenticity. And how do you do that at scale? That sounds like a sort of thing which is quite organic. Is it tricky to inculcate that type of idea within a large company? Yeah, I think the larger the company, the slower the rate of change in general. And that's true with any type of new integration. Um, But it it always has to start somewhere. There's a really great TED Talk. Uh, It's called How to Start a Movement. It's three minutes long, but it's uh, a guy at a music festival and he's dancing like a crazy lone nut on the side of this hill and everyone's kind of looking around thinking this guy's crazy but then one other person goes and starts dancing with them and they're the first follower and this is the most important role to enact change because then more and more people start getting up and start dancing mm. because that first follower created psychological safety and they showed that it wasn't uncool to go and participate so you need a few lone nets in different places and you need a first few followers, but you'll start to see the snowball where people think it's really cool. It might be one person going, you know, every Thursday I'm going to keep my Zoom room open for 30 minutes and everybody can come in and have a coffee and talk about what you're working on or use a tool like GatherRound to do like speed dating within your your groups. They've got great templates. So it takes one person who actually cares to try to do something and it takes one follower to make it so that it's not uncool to go and participate (laughs) yeah yeah. and and again i mean obviously that's uh, my question there was framed around scale but certainly when you're starting a company i know you spend a lot of time working with startups and scale-ups it's probably easier from a founder's point of view to just think about taking that intentional approach from the outset I'm asking it from a slightly different perspective, actually. This is more around how you actually start and found a company, but it feeds into this conversation, I think. So I've I've spoken to a few other guests on this series about community-led growth. Mm -hmm. You know, this series has sort of loosely been based around community in different respects, but taking a community-first approach to building companies in general. So how how do you think about this? And I think what would be really cool is to hear what practical steps 
should anyone be persuaded to take this approach, they would take to get started and in thinking about a community first approach, a community led growth strategy for their business. Yeah, definitely. And I think it depends, you know, what, when we were talking about community slightly before this, it was about employees and this might be more like user communities, right. Um, Or customer communities. And I think, you know, First, it depends, you kind of have to define why you want community and what that means. And Mm. I think a lot of people confuse it for social media management and everything else, but community just strictly means delivery of value. (laughs) And the first step in that is what do my users or my community find valuable and really understanding that at its core essence. And you basically should just know them inside and out, what makes them tick, what works for them, what doesn't. And have a whole list of aspirins and vitamins that are things that solve their problems or enhance their life. And look at that as the list of things that you want to solve. So, for example, uh, I work with a lot of communities that are talent platforms for freelancers. A lot of freelancers really struggle with finding work. That's one of the first problems that these types of uh, platforms solve is making sure they have a good volume of work that suits those skill sets. So an aspirin is directly tied to their business model, but vitamins might be, how do I provide uh, profile or personal branding support for a software engineer who doesn't know how to do this? Or mm. how do I teach someone how to pitch properly or set their own rates and support their businesses in that way? It's a professional community, but the value delivery is solving problems and then also allowing them to enhance their career and grow. They don't need to do, provide that type of support, but they do it because it helps the community at the end of the day and then once they see that value then they end up sticking around in the community a lot longer yeah we've mentioned two different sort of takes on community there and it's a, just a word you hear people discussing far more over the past couple of years so why is that well what's changed over the past few years why has community become a more commonly used if not necessarily commonly understood concept Absolutely. I think it's definitely still not fully understood because everyone has that different definition of what it is. Uh, For some people, community is customer service. For others, it's that social media management and so on and so forth. So everyone has their own idea of what community actually is. And, you know, maybe it is more of a buzzword these days just because people are going, ah, We'll just solve it by, you know, throwing a community manager at it. And it's done with yeah. very little intention, usually. <laughs> and it tends mm. to be a catch-all, these departments. They yeah. do a little bit of event planning. They do a little bit of marketing. They do a little bit of customer support and sales. But I think those that want to leverage it for growth, which is what you mentioned, community-led growth, you really have to deliver value, especially because people joining communities, especially digital, remote, or professional-related communities, these are smart people. <laughs> There's a lot of communities out there. Yeah. As we just mentioned, it's you know pretty prolific in the industry. So they really don't need to be a part of yours. Why are they there? Is it very unique and specific to them and their needs and their position in their career or their life? Um, is it cool factor? It's very exclusive and they want to get certain things out of it. But you really have to define value and, and get that cohort of people together. And that's the only thing that's going to make a powerful community and not just you know a vanity community. <laughs> <laughs> mm. yeah you know sometimes you're in your own bubble right and I suppose you know I've been thinking about this a lot more than I did before so perhaps I'm just guilty of seeing everything through the lens of community you've been looking at it for far far longer some people listening probably haven't looked at it at all so you know but one thing is true 
if in this sort of startup world, community has definitely become a tool, sometimes like a, a weapon almost that people think you need to use in order to actually get your company started. It is conceptually a brilliant way and perhaps the ideal way to launch products, you know, build a community around a need, help start satisfying that need and then launch your products in order to amplify what you're doing to help them. It sounds a great idea, but yeah. more broadly, you're working with a lot of startup founders. What single thing would you advise a startup founder to do today that would make an outsized impact because others aren't doing it or aren't doing it right? Would it be to do with community or would it be something else? Um like yes and no it would be to do with community but the biggest is especially if you would be having a business or a product that might later involve a community you have to talk to your users early and mm. often and have really strong feedback loops and you know sometimes people have that live with a product manager if they're a tech company sometimes that does live with like a customer service or customer success function but if you don't have those feedback loops you can't possibly make communities that grow and you might not even be building the right company or product or price point if you don't even know what people truly need and what problems you're solving because uh, the most successful companies solve problems they're not just nice to have that add on to things right so you really have to know what is the root of the problem that we're trying to solve for for our customers um, mm. and that becomes the foundation of all of these other things right yeah you worked for TopTal for a while, which obviously has gone some way to solving a big, big problem in a really smart way. What were the biggest lessons you learned about starting and scaling businesses from your time there? Absolutely. Uh, well, keep in mind, it's been a while since I've, I've been there. I think uh, from the business side of things, and, and keep in mind, a company like TopTal has two customers. There's the companies of which they provide services for, and there's also the talent community members that are very smart uh, technologists in different ways and different skill sets. Um, for the company's side, the problem that they solve is, I mean, at the time when TopTel first was around, really could only hire people in Silicon Valley for extremely high rates. There was low supply of very skilled people and extremely high demand. So a lot of these startups were getting priced out before they could even build an MVP. So they could hire people who were in remote areas for a fraction of the cost of the San Francisco rate and get these things actually built and accelerate innovation. And for the talent side of things, people who couldn't get visas or couldn't get that interview in a remote environment, they could get the job and now earn five, six, 10 times the amount that they could for compared to a local opportunity as the cost savings there alone was cost savings and then increased earnings was just massive, massive at the time. Now, TopDell has grown much more since then. They offer full team solutions and projects. They offer career support and coaching and rate setting and all of this type of stuff on the talent side. As your community and your customers evolve, so must you, right? You need to constantly learn what is that next problem? Okay, great. Now they're earning more money. What do they need? Mm. Okay, now they're learning how to do these extra skills because sometimes tech skills are hot, sometimes they're not. Uh, what else do they want to do? Okay, they want to connect with others. So, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we're always seeking the next thing. And that's why the feedback loops are important. It's because the feedback that you got in the first interviews, once that's solved, okay, what's next? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. how do we keep track of everybody throughout their user journey and life cycle? So it's not enough just to do a bunch of proof of concept in the first few stages of your business. You have to keep doing it throughout. Yeah. What's the most exciting 
development you can see happening over the next five years that maybe aren't maybe isn't obvious to most people or maybe people just haven't thought about it at all I don't know if it's the most exciting but I do think that the next kind of trigger point if we go back to discussions like remote work I do have a hunch that a lot of the push to go back to the office is because these really long office leases are very expensive Mm. and nobody's able to get out of them. And I do wonder if, you know, within the next 10 years, most of these are, you know, five to 20 year leases. And if you think of the pandemic happening in 2020, when most of the kind of remote work transitions started to happen, I wonder if we will see another wave of the adoptability of remote work and, people focusing a lot less on work from home and more on true remote work, like work from anywhere. So I do think that that's going to expand where people are hiring from. We're going to see more global and diverse teams. We're going to see a big push on the legislation side of things of like, okay, well, I have an employee working for an American company who's a Canadian citizen, but living in Germany. Mm. (laughs) Like, What does that actually mean for classification? But I also just think that it's going to be another shift in how cities are shaped, because now we have all of these massive office office buildings that need to be repurposed and redesigned in different ways. And we're going to actually see that push of people out of rural areas, kind of how we saw a little bit in, in the pandemic, but in a more permanent fashion. So I think we're going to see a pretty big difference in the way that people work and live. And I'm because, you know, cash is rules all things. <laughs> then once mm-hmm. these leases and commitments are done. I'm wondering if that's going to be the next wave where we're going to see the the bubble burst a little bit. Yeah, I mean, even now, it is fascinating. So I, you know, a lot of the data kind of suggests this is absolutely reducing it to a couple of sentences and it's far more complicated. Remote work, slightly less productive. Nobody wants to do in-office, therefore hybrid doesn't really have a particularly negative effect on productivity but does seem to allow you to have a, some, a lot of the, of the benefits of getting together. So that, that seems to be the sort of where people have settled, and that might very well be the best model, some form of hybrid. I think what I just can't get past is the idea that you would limit yourself geographically to the talent pool. And I guess you had this, you've had this realisation years ago, having worked within the companies you've worked in and worked in the way that you've, you've done it. But I just think about when I was building my teams at my last company, And I ended up setting up a dev team in Romania. Why? Well, it was significantly cheaper, and yet school levels were equally as good as they were in the UK. It just made sense Mm -hmm. to do that. So that was, I don't know, 10 years ago. I didn't didn't have to manage those people, but the head of development was based in London. And yeah, he'd have to fly out occasionally, but he he did morning check-ins with the team and did essentially virtual stand-ups, which is how a lot of teams operate now. The idea now that I would do that in the way that I've done it is crazy, let alone limit myself to working within the 50 mile radius of London. I mean, it just seems insane. So I suppose my point is, you, I agree. I think there's the making the best of a challenging situation. So you design a way of working, which means that we can get some utility out of the real estate that we have, but we do it in a way which mitigates the issue that people don't want to commute every day because people hate it. And it's not going to be a sudden cliff. But there's going to be, a, I would imagine, some inflection point where those leases begin to run out and people then have the almost freedom to actually then reimagine how to work. Because right now, it's just not possible. 
Yeah. And I think hybrid in the way that most people envision it in their minds is some days I work from home or wherever I want and some days I'm in the office. And I want people to push the concept of hybrid a bit further. Mm. Um, if you think of a traditionally remote company, a lot of them are getting together a couple times a year or even at least once a year to do that yeah. major planning session or brainstorming and team bonding activities. And is that considered hybrid? Because some of it is in person and mm. online. Uh, I think that those who do want to push the geographic boundaries of hiring, that's really where the future is going to be. Because the best person for that job is probably not your next door neighbor, right? Mm, no. <laughs> it's probably yeah, yeah. What, someone what are the chances? Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so getting the highest performing teams are going to be more diverse, are going to be global, and are going to be motivated to work in different environments. And mm. getting people together to do the important work, which is team bonding, collaboration, and problem solving, that can be done occasionally. And all of the rest of the work can be done asynchronously, remotely, and, and yeah. all the, everything else, right? Yeah, agree, agree completely. One caveat, or or maybe this is one nuance I'd be really interested to get your take on. What about when it comes to founding a company? You're working with startup founders, and I've done that myself. I'm about to do it again. I've worked with loads of teams doing it. And I just wonder whether actually that's a time where there, as we discussed earlier, is a huge benefit from being in the same room as somebody else more frequently than once a year or once a, every half year or even once a quarter. You know, so when the cadence requires you to meet more consistently, that almost requires you to be nearer. So in the early stage of business, I wonder if there's, um, it's going to be impossible to describe this on the podcast, but I'm thinking of a chart about, you know, time spent with one another versus number of employees. And I wonder whether there's a downward curve, as in at the beginning, it's better to have people clustered together um, because you can get more out of being together. And then over time that dissipates. Or again, am I being really unimaginative here? Yeah, I think it, it, to me, clustering isn't about geography, but it could be about time zone. <laughs> and yeah. so oh, yeah, yeah, knowing yeah. that you have a strong overlapping window with a co-founder is going to be super important. But again, if we talk about scale, it's like the old startup adage, every time you double in size, everything breaks. Mm -hmm. And like the velocity of change, it remains the same, but the distribution of who's carrying that change or implementing all of it it does, it does grow because you'll have middle managers and other executives and so on as, as the team gets larger. Uh, so those specific individuals may not be, be together as often, but now you have a brand new CMO with a new uh, head of performance and you're getting all this stuff set up. And for their first six months or a year together, it's going to be a lot of work and a lot of overlap. And so it's almost like different startups within a startup because every time you're founding a new team, founding new relationships and solving problems, you're going to need a lot of face time. Now, does FaceTime need to be in a specific building together? Maybe, maybe not. I think it's important to build those relationships maybe with, you know, a trip to see someone or, you know, a few days of collaboration between one or two people. Um, but I do think that with good foundations, you can accomplish a lot more than you think remotely. Mm. So the answer is no, you don't need to be close by to your co-founder. I, I don't think so. I mean, let's look at TopTel because you've mentioned them. They're a remote native company. I think mm. there was a period of time where the founders didn't even see each other for three or four years in person, really? but yeah. it's, you know, a multi-billion dollar valuation company now. And yeah. uh, there was lots of people that I worked with six or seven years ago. I worked with probably for three years straight and had never met them in person until the recent past. Cause we happened mm. to be in the same city. Um, fairly successful company, very specific ways that they operate remotely, but has yeah. experienced tremendous success and growth. Yeah. Um, 
and have helped countless other companies do it too because they're hiring remote teams through them. So uh, I don't know. I maybe I'm drinking too much of my own Kool Aid, but I think <laughs> that uh, I think yeah. it can be done with the right intention and the right mindset. So we talked about quite a lot of stuff actually. For that first, for the first, first chat. <laughs> that's what you're and, looking and, for. <laughs> yeah. And anything is there uh, anything else you want to discuss before we wrap up? Not that I could think of. Well, thank you very much for joining me. I'm sure we'll do this again sometime. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And that was my conversation with Erin Peters. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, I've got another friend and fellow work obsessive coming onto the show. So make sure you tune in again then if you want to hear more about engagement and transformation. Have a great week.